Hello, ladies and gentlemen. We're back here for another episode of the Sound of Group podcast. Coming right at you here with your host Evan Dobigan. This is uh, a exclusive to well, my own blog page originally, a Music of Evan's Mind blogspot.com, but exclusively otherwise <laughs> hosted by NotThePublicBroadcaster.com, a wonderful uh, site of culture, politics, sports, music talk, you know, what have you, entertainment world. We got it all there. Some great contributors. Well, there's a handful of them, but there's they're all they're all great. Okay, yes, I'm even including myself in that. I'm lumping myself in. But anyway, this is the second part of a theme that I uh, kicked off last time around, a couple weeks back, perhaps, uh, based on uh, well, what I ended up calling it was good tunes by uh, critic targets. So basically, this is songs that uh, I find pretty high quality that I enjoy that I would put on my iPod or that I have on my iPod anyway. Uh, that uh, are from artists that aren't really my cup of tea all the time, normally, um, to varying degrees. I mean, you know, I put ABBA in the last episode. That's really, I don't have any ABBA on my iPod, but I think that's a decent song that I use of theirs, Knowing Me, Knowing You. And Billy Joel. I have a little more Billy Joel than that. Not a huge fan of his. Don't really find him to be all that amazing. But I think the critics were a lot harder on him than I ever have been uh, from back in the day. They really slammed him when he became huge and famous and a big rock star, pop star, whatever you want to call it. They just didn't see the fuss and were really negative toward much of his music called lightweight, banal, kind of like wannabe Irving Berlin of rock and everything like that. But anyway, that's an example for you. So uh, I've got a bunch of different artists and their tunes in this episode that I find to be of quality. Now, they could come from an era where critics were a little nicer, but in general, these artists have been sort of like scorned at various points of their career. And I don't mean in the way like, oh, gee, they used to be so good and this album's not good and then, you know, we expect better because we like them. But it's, Jesus, God, this sucks and everybody likes to buy it and we don't like it because, you know, people are... I think that's a lot of it comes from that. I mean, they wouldn't have such a big problem with these kind of acts if they were just sort of low-key, right? Anyway, I'm going to kick off this uh, second part of that theme with a tune from a a group called... The Bee Gees. Yes, the Bee Gees. That's actually just a trio, really. They were brothers, the Gibb brothers. Uh, that's where it kind of comes from. The Brothers Gibb, that's what it was short for, the BG. Bee Gees, in the end. That's how they came up with the name. And this is the early phase of their career. Barry was still the primary writer and did a lot of the singing. But, um, you know, this shows their early style. They were mentored and kind of discovered by Jonathan King, an impresario of the music world, a producer, writer, singer, you know, everything. He just got involved in the executive world, too. And it's a track called Massachusetts, uh, one of their early Baroque pop hits. They were trying to sound a bit like the Beatles, you know, meets, Eng- meets Engelbert Humperdinck or something like that, you know. And uh, with their, obviously, their family Warren Harmonies going on, they still had that. This is way before the days when they were doing Staying Alive and all that disco that they're known for today. They were a completely different group uh, for the first decade of their recording existence. And uh, they didn't really make that transition until the mid-70s with an album that was a smash called Main Course. Then, of course, Saturday Night Fever came a few years later, and boom, they were international superstars, the likes of which they uh, hadn't even come really close to when they were big hit 
uh, group in the UK in the late 60s. Anyway, they were from, well, they were actually all from Scotland, originally from the Isle of Man, I want to say. And uh, they moved around, uh, and their musical career started taking off when they started singing tunes together, little three kids. And as they grew older, they became, you know, uh, they set their sights on the pop world, trying to become like Australia's answer to the Beatles after they relocated there when they were younger. And uh, they had some ups and downs. You know, Robin left the group at one point, but they really st stuck through it and uh, had their hits here and there in the early 70s, like How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. The critics were sometimes, they were just didn't know what to make of the Bee Gees. Sometimes they loved them, sometimes they hated them. They thought they were schmalty, sappy. They, they wrote in that kind of, a little bit sort of a... a a uh, goss uh, glossy sort of sappy way, but uh, you know what? Uh, they did it pretty damn well. I have a lot of respect for them in that way. Good songwriters for what style they do. Not my favorite group, but pretty good. And I have a few BG things there. It, they're not just defined by their disco. They write songs well outside of that. You know, it's not just about that. Anyhow, enough of that. Let's get to it here on the Santa Cruz Podcast, Massachusetts with the Bee Gees from 1967. the Bee Gees with Massachusetts, one of their many kind of slow ballad, uh, big smash hits from the late 60s. There was also a, well, I've got to get a message to use a little more up-tempo. I'm not thinking of necessarily that one, but New York Mining Disaster 1941, which was their first hit single internationally in the UK earlier that year. I mean, they were pretty young when this was going on. Barry was the senior member. He was the older brother at 20, 21 or so when they hit their big fame. But Robin and uh, Morris, who were twins, were just like... Teenagers, I think Robin's probably, he sings lead vocals on that one, by the way. It was about like 17 or so. And they had a couple other members in the band. The Bee Gees weren't just those three. But they sort of, you know, they were paired down to that by the mid-70s. just became the trio. Uh, and that's pretty much the setup they're known for. But they went with other musicians as members of the band for years before that until they could get their own musicianship down. Because they weren't all expert, you know, players on their own. Uh, they, they all played various things like keyboards and guitar, but... 
there wasn't a pro hotshot among them, but they did write songs. Uh, Barry was the primary writer, like I said, but they wrote that one all together. So the, the brothers would write together. And, uh, yeah, they had their fair share of success, I guess you could say. But then people sort of forget that in the late 60s they had that going, you know. You know, Barry, uh, he added the the signature falsetto years later, but you can still hear that breathiness, that quality of his vo- vocals where it sounds like he's on the verge of breaking down into tears, even as early as uh, Words in 1968. And Holiday, which is sort of uh, Robin's number, he always sounded a little more timid, like he was, you know, on, <laughs> like he was crying, not on the verge of it, while he sang. And Morris had his own lead vocals once in a while, but it was mainly those two, because Robin was the heartthrob, I guess. I don't know. So it was it usually veered between the more manly-looking Barry and the more Prince, uh, <laughs> Prince uh, Farquhar or whatever kind of look-alike thing going on there, uh, that uh, you know, Prince Humperdinck sort of weird hairdo that uh, Robin was rocking in that m- massive overbite, but the, the girls loved it. He was a cutesy pie, I guess, at the time, anyway. But, you know, unfortunately, the, most of them have passed on. Now, even their younger brother was a soul act. Robin, or sorry, um, Andy, uh, passed away before any of them, and now it's just Barry, really, so unfortunately, the Bee Gees are no more because there's only one Bee Gee. And uh, there's, you know, his initials are Bee Gee as well, Barry Gibb. Anyway, let's move on from that to another big act from the 70s. Now, this is earlier in their history, the late 60s. They came off as a critic's darling at first, but they sort of divided critics. Some thought they were an amazing new innovative group, and others thought they were, you know, sort of like a cheesy stab at commercial rock mixing and jazz. It was sort of the jazz rock craze that had a bit of a footing in the late 60s, and that was Chicago. They were originally called Chicago Transit Authority until uh, the actual one sort of got involved legally. And uh, they became much bigger as the 70s wore on for their soft rock hits, for their easy listening music, and they were still a huge act right into the 80s. And uh, boy, did the critics hate them by then. I mean, <laughs> their music didn't have the distinctive horns that they, were, uh, they built their, their reputation on. And, um, well, we're going to take a listen to a cut from their second album, which was just called Chicago. And, and most of their albums were just called that, Chicago 3, Chicago 4, Chicago 5. They rarely named their albums after any kind of phrase, title, or song. Uh, and they put out a lot of double, triple albums back in those days, too, trying to be all innovative. Their producer and manager, James William Garrico, this was all sort of his brainchild. But anyway, they were massively successful, especially after they ditched the whole jazz rock sound, like I said, and that's when the critics really started to turn on them. But they didn't have a lot of uh, favorable reviews even when they were in that prime era. Although I like their late 60s, early 70s stuff, too, but just the, just the sound of Peter Cetera and his voice sort of like evokes that Ooh, awful, cringy memories of 80s soft rock music. He's the ultimate schlock, cheese rock singer. And, but at the time, he was just another member of a group with a lot of big names. Robert Lamb was a keyboardist in it, Danny Serafin on the drums, and Terry Kath, who, one of the weirder rock deaths in a game of Russian roulette he was playing with some friends. May have been some substances he was on. He was known to indulge quite heavily. Um, he was a big bear of a guy. Anyway, he said, don't worry, it's not loaded. Famous last words with the gun. <laughs> And that was in 1978, and after that, their rock, any rock uh, influence in the group kind of waned a little more, because he was an absolute mountain of a guitar player, just a fantastic combined jazz, hard rock, and everything, and, and J- I think Jimi Hendrix even praised him and said he's the best guitarist in America, or whatever, sort of like, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, if you want to see somebody great out of me. He also praised Billy Gibbons, a young Billy Gibbons in uh, ZZ Top back in those days, too, that he had met when they were touring around the South and trying to carve a name out. Anyway. So if Hendrix says you're pretty damn amazing, then you probably are, and Terry Kath was that. He's got a solo in this particular song, and he goes from wah pedal to sort of more of a jazzy picking type of thing, you know, sounding a bit like uh, 
Freddie Green or something like that. And then he goes into this uh, rocking wah pedal thing. <laughs> goes out and does his Hendrix. Anyway, that's a this is a, a hell of a cut, but you know it's not from the. It's not from it's not the music they particularly hated, but it's one of Chicago's songs. I'm not a huge Chicago fan, like I say. I don't really get the whole thing about them too much, too. But this is a pretty good song. It's one of their best originals, too. Great horn arrangement and everything. It's like hard rock if you add jazz to it. It really is interesting. Just take a listen. You'll see what I mean. From 1969, here's Chicago with 25 or 6 to 4 on the Sound of Groove podcast. <laughs>
Okay, there was Chicago with 25 or 6 to 4 here in the Sound Group Podcast. A uh, band that, yeah, got some uh, pretty negative reviews over the years, and that didn't seem to stop them from selling millions of records, especially in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, they got some momentum going to the beginning, and they had some critics talking about how great they were, but it got more and more uh, dismissive as time went on. And But there they had that killer lineup with amazing musicians all throughout the band. They have that horn section, James Pankow, uh, uh, was a co- was a co-writer of uh, that tune, which is mostly written by uh, Robert Lamb, the keyboardist that I mentioned earlier, but sung by Peter Cetera, who was the bassist, and Terry Kath really takes over though. I mean, just what a guitar player! Uh, like a uh, hidden gem, sort of like an underrated, un- overlooked guy that you never hear mentioned among the greatest guitarists, unless you're talking about like hardcore musician circles. But no, nobody out there hears his name and thinks, "Ooh, guitar hero!" You know, you really have to know the band Chicago or know your rock music to know Terry Kath. But uh, I suggest you get to know him. Like John Lovett said, good things happen when you get to know me. Anyhow, that's uh, that's a great tune, but not necessarily a great band. <laughs> In my opinion, they sort of just peaked with their first or second album, and then it became a series of cheesy tunes from that point on, and just got worse and worse. I mean, if you leave me now, that's them, and stay the night, and all these. I don't even know most of them, but I heard a lot of them before, and it's just, eesh, Peter Cetera took over as the influence in the group. You're the inspiration. Oh, my goodness. It's basically stuff that's more vapid than some of Air Supply's greatest hits. But anyway, too bad. Chicago at one point was an interesting group, to be honest. Whether some critics liked them or not, I thought their early stuff was kind of groundbreaking. They were, you know, there was a little bit of a heavy-handedness trying to be, like, socially conscious and and all that stuff. But um, overall, overall it was interesting, intriguing. Incidentally, that's about the third song from that year or so that has that same chord progression, that descending progression. That You hear that in a slower uh, form. And While My Guitar Gently Weeps with the Beatles, which came out only, you know, probably when they were recording this stuff or maybe around the time just after, uh, 1968. And then, of course, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, which is a folky tune-off of Led Zeppelin's first album. And then Brain Stew by Green Day uses the same chord progression. Okay, they didn't have an excuse, because by then, like, three or four big songs had done it. Let's move on, shall we? How about a band from the early 70s as well that was selling a lot of units, though maybe not as much as Chicago, that sort of tapped into this new sort of gentle, sensitive market, like I talked about James Taylor in the last episode, and it's a band called Bread, fronted and mostly uh, spearheaded by the songwriting of David Gates, and some people thought this was kind of cool, they were sort of like a really uh, laid-back, jazzy kind of thing, I mean, there's some groups of the late 60s that sounded a bit like that, like Spooky Tooth or... um, or, Classics 4, that's another band that morphed eventually into something called the Atlanta Rhythm Section. Anyway, uh, Bread, yeah, they got, uh, if you were playing Bread, you were trying to get uh, a lady to uh, slip into something a little more comfortable. It was kind of like make-out music for its time, I suppose. And most men who were saying, I'm a huge fan of Bread, were probably just saying it so they could get the ladies, let's be honest. Because their music wasn't exactly, you know, uh, didn't have a lot of gravitas to it. It was a little slick and, like, you know, mellow. But Gates sort of added a little bit of a unique touch. You know, he was from Oklahoma. He was a southerner. So there's a bit of country, genteel sound to it. You know what I mean? Uh, but it's got its roots in sort of more of a pop radio type of thing and jazzy, kind of kind of like their early early parts of light jazz. But anyhow, also speaking of derivative, uh, now this song, I don't really know one before it that sounds just like it. But later, uh, Allman Brothers Band has a song that sounds just like this, the intro, uh, called Melissa. And then Van Morrison has a song in 1982 called Across the Bridge Where Angels Dwell. So, people are ripping off bread, it's true. Here's 1970's top 10 hit from bread, Make It With You, on the Sound of Groove podcast. 
There's a bread smash hit from 1970, Make It With You. Sort of uh, signaled the vanguard of soft rock, easy listening, that kind of a genre that really fomented that year. James Taylor, you know, maybe more folk inclined, uh, was part of that whole thing, you know. Um, there were there was a lot of that going on, and maybe it had come from a balladeer, kind of soulful style in the mid-60s, who knows, but it got progressively more and more sappy as the 70s went along, and while bread was nothing to- totally offensive, and to me, I think they were good at their craft, and the critics at the time were not so fond on them, thinking they were just sort of like really like a paper, plastic kind of um, cardboard cutout of what a, what a real uh, pop group should sound like. Anyhow, I-, I did say that song didn't sound like anything from before, but actually it's structurally and melodically similar to Poor Side of Town by Johnny Rivers. Do 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 ah do 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 da. It's just there's real strong similarities there. So again, I mean, just but that's not a big deal because sometimes if you're not trying to be derivative of a great song and you're not trying to sort of ape the style or the uh, sound or some of the melodies and hooks and riffs, then you're not trying, you know. Because uh, Bob Dylan sure did that with old folk tunes and things in the public domain that he passed off as his own. It happens. It's you can call it plagiarism or you can call it uh, paying homage. Who knows? Anyhow, that, it worked out well for Bread to be sounding like Johnny Rivers from the mid-60s. Uh, uh, maybe I'll put a link into the songs that I say a lot of these sound like. It's kind of weird. This is becoming a different theme all of a sudden. But no, uh, this is a good tune there that uh, was from a band that no one was too enthused on because they had a lot of fans. The critics, who cared what they said, right? Because Bread sold big units. But then they uh, sort of surprisingly broke up in 1973. Too much tension over the fact Gates wrote and sang most of the hits. And um, did a one-off album after that. Mostly it was a solo career for him. 
afterward, after 1973. So their prime was, was short because they really weren't together for too long, maybe like four years, like 69, their first record came out. Anyway, moving on from Bread and their outstanding success that wasn't always met with uh, approvals from the critics, how about another group, more of a super group, one that was... The hype and the uh, hoopla around them is probably what turned a lot of critics against them. Now, they probably didn't also like the music on top of that, and they just sort of saved their target, uh, saved their ammo up for these guys as a target. I'm talking about Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Now, sometimes with Neil Young and the group, the criticism was more muted because he was sort of a darling of them because of his songwriting and his honesty and, you know, all that other stuff. But these guys were seen as, you know, as a unit, especially the three of them, a little more, uh, a little more superficial. It's kind of this, like... Uh, double standard of these guys who were talking about, you know, they would sing out about politics and hippie guys who were uh, getting involved in, you know, talking about the state of the nation and backing all kinds of politicians. They, you know, were a little more of their liberal values, but at the same time indulging in all kinds of uh, excesses of the day, from drugs to women, you know what I mean. Critics were not fond of David Crosby and his uh, sort of like unabashedly uh, I guess you could say rebellious ways, sort of on the radical side of politics, and uh, he well, he made no bones about it. Of course, he had a raging cocaine habit that started getting out of control in the 70s. Graham Nash was the straight man in the group, in between Crosby's uh, sort of uh, outspokenness and Stills' rampant egomania that would go on, that fueled by booze and cocaine himself. And uh, Nash tried to play Peacemaker so many times. The group split up and got back together and split up and got back together. Right now they're on the outs, especially Nash and Crosby, who are the closest to, uh, relationship of the two in the group. Stills and Young had had one because they'd been in Buffalo Springfield. They kind of had this love-hate relationship. But it was more of a love thing going on between Nash and Crosby. And now they hate each other. It's like school children fighting. They're old men who are mad about comments made that... I think Crosby said something about Nash breaking up with his wife of many years, and Nash took it so hard that he doesn't want to talk to him ever again. But anywho, back in 1968, these guys jammed together. Uh, Bert, uh, Crosby had recently left the Birds. Um, Nash was thinking about leaving the Hollies, and uh, Stills had just um, gotten out of Buffalo Springfield, which had broken up. And all of a sudden, they had this chemistry and thought, oh, man, we got to do a record together. So they formed a group, and by the uh, middle part of 69, had put out their first self-titled album. And it was a huge smash, and it was considered one of the first supergroups of rock, like taking big members from famous bands before and smashing them together and seeing what happens. And the results were so positive that it sort of ushered in a new era of mega big bucks in the rock industry. And all of a sudden, all these... All these promoters and producers and executives wanted a piece of the pie, and they were forming Blind Faith and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and all these groups that were, hey, come see the guy who was the drummer in this band with the guitarist in this group and the lead singer in that, you know, it was like that kind of thing. And uh, it, got, it got old fast, and a lot of critics just hated it. Blind Faith, even though they put out a decent first album, didn't get the benefit of the doubt. I mean, people just had it in for these groups before it even came out. And Crosby, Stills, Nash's first album was obviously a huge hit. I mean, the listeners of this sort of baby boomer group uh, sort of loved their harmonies, loved their uh, way of they could transition between rock and folk and uh, country. It's sort of like a, a real California thing. You know, it was the start of the California rock scene becoming so, um, so dominant in the uh, contemporary music world. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they didn't appreciate that the harmonies were poorly recorded. And there's something to be said for that. They do sound a little abrasive on this album. And there's something to be said for, you know, they're just sort of... It came off as a superstar arrogance, and people just... They just, oh, rock should be pure, and the guys should be just, like, one of the people. It was kind of a little bit of a, 
I guess you could say the critics were maybe a little bit grounded in this kind of idealism. But it's true that Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I mean, even one time in the mid-70s when Young joined them, they went on a tour for a Greatest Hits album. That was unheard of then. They toured strictly for the money, is what people said. And they admitted years later that's what it was. They couldn't get together and get along long enough to make a studio album. The egos clashed so much. And that's been the story of the group, is there's never been this leadership that everybody sort of rallies around. They all have their own idea of what to do. And it's, uh, yeah made for a tempestuous situation, but one that when they get together and produce music tends to uh, get a lot of attention. The tours always sell out. The records seem to do well for the most part, except the last one I think they ever did was in 1999 called Looking On. I don't think that did too well, so they haven't even put out one as a uh, trio or quartet since then, but they've toured together since then. Anyway, I've talked enough about Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young sometimes and why they're disliked, but let's just go with their first album and the signature cutoff of it. Uh, which is pretty good. It's like an epic sort of, it goes back and forth, different movements, different uh, tempos and rhythms go into it. Stephen Stills pretty much did this about his girlfriend at the time, Judy Collins, obviously a big folk singing star in her own right. And it's called Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, and it's one of the signature tracks they ever did, showing off their ornate harmonies and everything, but Latin-inspired too that no one ever brings up. Anyway, it's Stills mostly played on it with Dallas Taylor, who was their drummer. And, uh, well, anyway, let's hear it now. It's Crosby, Stills, Nash with Sweet Judy Blue Eyes from 1969. One of the tracks, one of the tunes, rather, they performed at their uh, day, one of their first gigs ever at Woodstock a couple months later. And, uh, yeah, so I'm going to start it partway through because it's got the penultimate sort of ending, the doo-doo-doo harmony part, you know, the last vamp. Anyway, we're going to, you know, kick it off in the middle of the track for that reason because it's a long one. It's seven and a half minutes, and I want to play the whole thing, right? Here's Sweet Judy Blue Eyes on the Sound Groove Podcast. You make it hard, and you make it hard, and you make it hard, and you make it hard. Got to lose 
chestnut brown canary Ruby throated sparrow Sing the song, don't be long Thrill me to the of the angel ring around the moonlight asking me said she's so free how can you catch the sparrow lacy lilting signature Crosby, Stills, and Nash opus of sorts. Well, sweet, actually. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. I guess it's a double, you know, it's like a pun, basically, you know. It's a sweet because it has a lot of different movements to it. But it's also, if you take it all as one phrase, it sounds like he's saying sweet Judy Blue Eyes. And she did have blue eyes. He wasn't just exaggerating. And, uh, yeah, that was one of the long uh, signature cuts, as I said, on their debut solo album or debut album together. And yeah, the critics were like, God, what is that sound? It's just, oh, it's so syrupy, and oh my goodness, this isn't as good as the Hollies or Buffalo Springfield or the Birds. It's some kind of bastardization of it all. Well, the record-buying public did not agree. They uh, they ate it up. They fed it down, and their uh, follow-up album, Deja Vu, was an even bigger seller. But then, of course, you know, they railroaded their own progress and sort of uh, went back to a lot of their solo gigs. I mean, Neil was always going to do that, Neil Young. But Stephen Stills wanted to sort of... Uh, explore that you know he wanted to do his own thing and not have to be dragged down with the bickering and everything of uh, being amongst uh, the other two or three anyway so you know that the whole uh, keg powder keg I suppose um, was set to go off in the early 70s and uh, for a fleeting moment though they were uh, one of the mega groups of rock they had sort of uh, come at the right time and pioneered a new wave of superstar bands and for better or worse, that changed the rock music industry, which was becoming much bigger entertainment, you know, um, at the time. The, the concerts, the promotions, and everything like that. It was getting out of hand, some of the purists said. But uh, they said rock and roll was dead in 1970. But now that we look back, we go, what the hell were they talking about? There was so much good music. But I guess at the time, it seemed like something had been lost. The innocence was gone. The 
the uh, aura of uh, kind of like danger and uh, where, you know, the music sort of had something to say and now it was just sort of another uh, arm of corporate America and whatnot. Well, if they thought it was bad then, my goodness how much worse it got. But anyhow, let's, uh, let's uh, move on to a different group here. But the band, yes, one of the progressive rock giants of the 70s. That is a band that I find mildly interesting. I mean, a lot of their stuff sort of overdoes it. You know, they, they overindulge in this sort of geeky science sort of based rock. While Genesis was talking about fighting dragons in the ancient forest, you, got, you had these guys talking about views of topographic oceans and what. <laughs> I don't even know. Just songs that sounded like they were talking about, you know, biology or chemistry or whatever the hell. But of course, these guys were expert musicians in the group. I mean, a lot of them were trained in jazz or classical and or even folk to a large extent. Steve Howe, who was the uh, uh, great uh, guitarist in the band, later actually, I think, formed the group Asia. He's all over the beginning of this particular track I'm going to play from 1970. It's called Roundabout, and it's basically their triumph. You know, it's an absolutely masterfully put together song. It's got the uh, sort of like skill and dexterity of a jazz band, but um, going at it with almost a classical uh, sweet-like thing, you know, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. So this one really is a sweet. It fe it really accentuates the uh, greatness of everybody in the band's playing. Bill Bruford, the drummer, has his moments, but mostly it's Steve Howe with his classical guitar stuff. Chris Squire has an incredible uh, bass line going on in the background that's almost like some kind of funk thing, but, you know, a little sly slinking back there. Uh, Rick Wakeman, of course, you know, his solo career was one interminable you know, organ solo after another, but here he's even, you know, kept in check, um, playing some synthesizers here in the background, too. They're used as textures, though. They're not used as, like, you know, this kind of uh, showy type of noodling that uh, critics really hated Rick Wakeman's music for. But, uh, yeah, so take a listen to it. We got It's a very long track, too. I'm going to play a good portion of it, the eight minutes of it. It's from their uh, album, late released in late 71, called Fragile. I think it was their fourth album by then. Anyway, uh, Tony Kay had been the keyboardist before, but uh, he was replaced before they, they recorded this one by Rick Wakeman, like I said. I was the keyboardist. Anyhow, uh, yeah, the critics just found them to be overwrought and all that, but, you know, this track shows that at their best, they were one hell of a prog rock band. So I'm going to get to it now. It's Roundabout on the Sound of Groove podcast, the last track for this second of a two-part theme. So let's hear Roundabout from Yes on the Sound of Groove podcast.
There you go, Yes with Roundabout, which actually uh, John Anderson and Steve Howe wrote, uh, the lead singer John Anderson, and it was inspired by a bus trip with a million roundabouts from a concert in Scotland when they were coming back, and there's all the various things they see along the way, like lakes and stuff like that, and mountains coming out from the sky. Anyway, great collaborative effort from them, even though their critics thought their music to be a little bit too sciency and maybe too, uh, you know, show-off-centric, uh, but eh, whatever, that's an example. Uh, yes is a mildly interesting group. I do have a smidge of prog, prog rock stuff, mostly Genesis, but they're one that stands out and stands up to Genesis as a great one. Anyway, that's the end of the episode. i got to bid you adieu, so farewell. Farewell. <laughs>